Hello, and welcome to the NeuroTwist podcast, where we talk about neurodiversity in the world of speech-language pathology and beyond, along with other therapy topics. I'm your host. My name is Emily. I am a licensed speech-language pathologist working in the early intervention setting. I'm also an autistic person. I was identified as an adult, and ever since receiving my diagnosis and learning about the incredible neurodiversity movement, I've been passionate about learning as much as I can, sharing as much as I can, and having amazing conversations, which is what we're here to do today. We are back with another episode of our Prep for and Affirming School Year series, and for this episode, I am joined by early elementary SLP, Sarah, and I will let her introduce herself now. I am Sarah. I am a speech-language pathologist. I primarily work in the public school setting, working with kids between kindergarten and second grade. And I also work part-time for a private practice where I work with early intervention and preschool age kids. So I'm getting that whole range between early intervention and second grade. And right now that's my vibe. That's where I feel the most comfortable. And I'm excited to just keep on in my career and keep learning. I am relatively new into the field. I'm going into my fourth school year this year as a school-based SLP. I graduated with my master's in August of 2020. So in all of the time to graduate and start working in the schools, that, that was a time. I went to the University of Cincinnati for my master's and I'm based out of Cincinnati still. I grew up in Columbus, and then I went to the University of Kentucky for my undergrad. So I've always been in that Ohio and Kentucky area. I am neurodivergent. I am disabled, chronically ill. I'm queer, and my identities have really shaped my perspective and practice as an SLP. And my own just personal history has really shaped my perspectives as well. I am the oldest of six kids. My two youngest sisters both have Down syndrome. I was 10 when my biological sister, Bridget, was born and was given the diagnosis of Down syndrome at birth. And that because I was old enough to be an active participant in her therapies and her evaluations. That's how I got into this field. Then my sister, Alina, we adopted her from Ukraine when she was three. And she also has Down syndrome. She also has apraxia and is an AAC user. So just in my family, that was like what I was brought into. That was my beginning experience with the field. And I also have two brothers who had speech down disorders. So between the six of us, we had the whole gamut of what we work with. So uh, that was just my norm um, and got me into the field. And I loved it. I knew that I wanted to work with people with disabilities in some aspect. I didn't necessarily always know that speech pathology was going to be it. But once I figured that out, I was like, yep, this seems like a good fit for me. And going through undergrad and grad school just confirmed that except for the fact that for a while I thought that I was incompatible with the demands of the field because of my own experience with being disabled. It was in undergrad that I had a fibromyalgia diagnosis and 
verdict's still out on if I actually have it or not, because I do have a family history. And so that's hard. And the most frequent misdiagnosis for EDS is fibromyalgia. But when I started grad school, our first year was full-time classes with part-time clinical. And then second year was the reverse. Two of the days that we had classes were from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., with I think like maybe an hour break for lunch, but the classes were also three hours long. I had never had a schedule like that. I think that I naturally accommodated myself in undergrad when I could choose my schedule. I knew what worked best for me in terms of how long I could tolerate sitting, how long I could tolerate being in class at a time. When that schedule was given to me and I had no other choice, But to sit in lectures for that long, my pain was off the charts, like the worst that it has ever been in my life. My symptoms got that bad almost immediately after starting grad school. And it was this internal, like back and forth struggle of, I emotionally care about this so much. This is part of my identity. This is so important to me, but I don't know if I can do it. And that's then when I looked into more answers of things, I just, I got lucky and I ended up getting my diagnosis of hypermobile EDS. And I, I had the best supervisor that I had in grad school. I had that whole first year and I told her just what was going on and how much I was struggling. And she was, and still is, she's so supportive and was like my biggest advocate and support When I asked for accommodations in grad school, they were pretty much, you could try going online. You could take a year off. I was like, this is what accommodations look like? Really? (laughs) Yeah. The assumption that everybody in the therapy field is just completely, quote unquote, typical is, I'm sure we could (laughs) get into all that, but we have a lot more to dig into. (laughs) And so- I wanted to start with, so you learned about neurodiversity while you were in graduate school. So can you just give us a little overview of that? Yeah, for sure. So in grad school, I don't think I would have learned about neurodiversity unless I sought it out and unless I had the supervisor that I did. It was my supervisor who was also very supportive of me during my personal experience with disability. She also had a son who had a genetic disorder that's not otherwise specified, but he also ended up having an autism diagnosis. And at the time, I didn't know about her personal experience with her son. But because of just her experience and her knowledge and background, she was the one that gave information about neurodiversity and gave recommendations to follow the child's lead and affirm the child in what they were doing. And I had never heard about anything like this. Even in my years of working with my sisters, I hadn't necessarily heard things explained that way. And so she was really the supervisor and academic person who gave me that information, but not in my classes. It was between her kind of giving some of that information and then me looking for it myself. And social media 
was the biggest source of knowledge for me. I joined Facebook groups. I followed people on Instagram. I started listening to podcasts and that's really what did it. And so now I have this kind of this additional passion to freely share information with people because our training isn't necessarily giving it to us. So did you get to start your career off from the affirming mindset then? I did. And that was like at the very beginning of grad school. So the start of being able to like directly work with and be in contact with kids, that's where I started from. And so then coming into the schools, that was my mindset. And so I feel so fortunate that my timing just lined up that way. Yeah, that's amazing because I was like maybe six to eight months into my career when I started going through the shift, but I would have loved to not have to go through it at all. And then I know there's so many people who are like 30 years into their career and I'm so glad that people do take making that shift seriously. But man, I I feel for people who have to really overhaul the things that they learned and what they've been doing. That's where I have so much compassion for people who are trying to make the shift after being in the field, because that cannot be easy. That has to be so hard to look at your career and be like, wow, I feel like there's these things that I've done that are quote unquote, the wrong way of doing things, but it's never too late to try something new. And that's a big thing that I want to emphasize to people is you don't necessarily have to reference research for every single strategy you use with kids and with clients. You can just try something and see if it sticks. I feel like that's the biggest thing for me in working with kids directly. And I know that we're, we'll talk a little bit more about specific sort of strategies later, but just trying something and see how the kid responds to it. It, which I think for me, it causes anxiety because I also do well when I know what's going to happen and I know what the expectations are, but it's just better for the kids to be like doing just a little bit of trial and error. For sure. So let's go ahead and get into it then. We're here to talk about the elementary years. And so I thought that we could just talk about the whole process from point A to point Z (laughs) and every way that neurodiversity affirming practices can embed themselves into every step. So first step being referral and assessment. So I'm going to give you the floor to just say everything you want to about the referral and assessment process. And I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, for sure. So I work with kids coming in kindergarten through second grade. So I have two groups of kids when it's coming to evaluations. I have the kids who came in from preschool with services already, and we're doing a reevaluation, which I frequently will be reevaluating kids in kindergarten if their initial was when they're three, and then three years later, they're six. I'm going to be just meeting them and I'm going to be doing their reevaluation. This other pool of kids is kids who maybe didn't go to preschool 
and were never referred for other services in part because they weren't, no one had eyes on them. So they weren't identified before kindergarten because they didn't go to preschool or they just are receiving some sort of outside diagnosis like autism, ADHD, and parents are giving that diagnosis then to the school team or kids who are in that middle ground of low to moderate support needs who haven't had supports in the past, but in the school setting, the environment is not compatible with their needs and how they function best. And my school this past year just had one self-contained classroom open, which was a multiple disabilities classroom. Everything else has been cross-categorical gen ed supports. And so I have a huge range of levels of support needs that kids have. And so my evaluation process for either initials or reevaluations, it's different just depending on what the suspected category of disability is and what professionals are involved in the case. So looking at initial evaluations, if a student already has some sort of diagnosis that the parent has brought to the school, like autism or ADHD, my first question is, what accommodations or interventions have we done? Because that's our responsibility too, is to see how a student responds with interventions or accommodations in place. Because there are a lot of kids that they just need those accommodations or strategies put in place and they can access the curriculum. That's not a student that would then need that specially designed instruction to support needs. And I think when there's a diagnosis on the table, a lot of people are very quick to jump to say that automatically means they need an IEP. It doesn't. And I don't think enough people actually know what accommodations can look like. And so that's one of my roles that I try to play in the school is educating people on, okay, what does a strategy like front loading look like in the school system? What does giving additional structure and routine for a student actually look like in the gen ed classroom? And so there's a lot of accommodations that really set kids up for success and benefit their neurotype that benefit how they thrive in a classroom that don't then require that additional support from other school personnel. So then can I ask you in those situations, how do you ensure that those strategies are being used if it's not documented? So the good thing is that with a 504 being put in place. And then that is the legal document version of an IEP that just has those accommodations. And so that takes also a lot of collaboration with, for us in Ohio, it's our school counselor that then is the case manager for those 504s, working really closely with, I think, also your school psychologist and your school counselor to talk about what kinds of accommodations can be put in place and kind of that difference in what is a direct service and what kinds of needs then can be addressed through direct service versus what accommodations do we need to put in place to support students. 
that actually makes sense. I had a 504 in the later part of high school. And now I'm reflecting on that, that, okay, I didn't have to get evaluated through the school. It was just a big conversation with not all of my teachers because only two of them showed up. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's like a nice parallel to an IEP. The way that it functions is very similar where it has to be redone or reevaluated every year. It's another legal document that teachers are held to. And so I think that education and constant kind of checking in and supporting is also required with kids who are on a 504. I've had kids who maybe are dismissed from having an IEP that then go to having a 504. And I've had the opposite also be true, where sometimes kids will be on a 504. The As kids come in at kindergarten and go through go through the grades, the types of environments change and the demands change. And so sometimes if just accommodations are appropriate in, in kindergarten, maybe in the future, then there is a point where they need additional supports or services. And that's one of the things that I love about Special education is that it's not definite. It's not, there's a lot of answers to questions that are given, but they're very rarely set in stone. And so there is a lot of wiggle room, I think, for being able to update an IEP at any given time and amend it, being able to refer for additional testing or testing before it has to be done at that three-year point. I see that very frequently with kids also in this early elementary age is recategorizing. So maybe a kid comes in a speech and language impairment and their services are targeting pragmatic language only. And then I have those thoughts in my head of, is this really just a speech and language impairment or is there something more going on? And so I don't hesitate to bring those circumstances to other professionals, but that's taken me a long time to get comfortable with collaborating and advocating and feeling confident that what I'm saying is going to be seen as correct by other professionals. Can we get into a little bit for those kids that do need to have assessments? Mm -hmm. And I'm also curious too, just in general, because I've said before that I am really invested in using affirming practices across the board because you just never know when I feel like it's beneficial for everybody. I would be, I would love to hear about if and how you incorporate those things into like just speech assessments, like just articulation. But yeah, I'd love to hear anything about the actual assessments that you have to do. For sure. So There's a lot of stipulations when it comes to evaluations and qualifying students for services, whether it's saying they have to fit into one of these categories or they have to be, quote unquote, one and a half standard deviations below in multiple areas. I know different states have different criteria for qualification across the board. Usually for me, it'll have to be like, There are at least one and a half standard deviations below on a standardized assessment to qualify. And that's where I use standardized assessment cautiously and I try to use it in my favor. So I will use 
an assessment like the pragmatics subtests on the castle or the pragmatics profile on the self, which they're not neurodiversity affirming assessments and it's normed on neurotypical norms. But I use that to qualify kids if that's what I need to do to have a number. If it's literally just about the number, I will use that number to my advantage and then explain all the ways that this is not representative of this child's communication style and how this child is not a part of the quote unquote norm that was then used for this assessment and explain in objective terms how the child communicates, whether it's the way that they use eye contact or body language or the way that they play or the way that they initiate interaction with peers and adults. It has to be a lot of description and writing up these evaluations and doing observations and really making sure that we're evaluating a kid to understand their skills. It takes a lot of time especially when you're figuring out how to do it. But I've started to make a bank of statements. Like I explain when I use words like neurodivergent, I have a definition that I've written up that I copy paste in all my evaluations. Or I've made a bank of accommodations and I've made just my own things that I can copy and paste and put in evaluations to make it a little bit faster. But I won't lie when I say that making these evaluations and writing them up, it takes a lot more time than if we could just put in a score. I feel like the our work environments aren't always conducive to that. I can tell you for myself because, of course, I try to write reports that are as affirming and also objective just descriptions as much as I can. But in my initial evaluation process, I have to finish the report before we end the evaluation. So I have to do it all right there. (laughs) I can't even, I actually like in my brain hurts just trying to imagine having to do that. Yeah. The ECI timeline is very quick. Mm -hmm. So it's just what's required. So can you explain a little more? Because I think that there is a misconception that being neurodiversity affirming means being really positive all the time. And a lot of people will say it's not helpful to say things like autism is a superpower, which I agree. So can you talk more about how you put affirming objective descriptions of someone's communication while still showing where there's needs, not making it overly positive or overly negative? Yeah, for sure. So I think that you can talk about a kid's strengths in an evaluation and no matter what you're evaluating for a child and what their diagnosis or lack of diagnosis is, there should always be strengths in an evaluation. But you can also include the things that are not helpful or beneficial for a child. If they're protesting by physically hitting and pushing people away, that's exactly how I would word it. With different functions of communication, that's a big part of my assessment process is observing, okay, what are the different methods of communication that they're using for these different functions? Of course, physical, things that are physically harmful to a child aren't going to be helpful to them. And 
that's the blanket statement. No matter what their diagnosis is, it, they may be communicating. And that's my like, okay, what are they communicating? And what are they communicating potentially? And so you can just say that within a 10 minute time frame, Johnny physically pushed another child away to protest. Objectively, a lot of times I like to use numbers because I feel like numbers to other people, they make it more legitimate. And I don't agree with that, but I'm trying to play to my favor of getting other people on my side. And if numbers are going to do it, I'm going to say it. So if Johnny pushed Pierre away five times in a 10 minute interval, I feel like that's a very objective statement and describes what we're seeing. And we can say that's not helpful to him, that only having physical means of communication might not be helpful to him in his environment. And so then we can say, if we're looking then at needs and implications from an evaluation standpoint, then expanding the ways in which this child communicates in their preferred way. So if they use a device or if they use gestures or mouth words, verbal speech, but being able to diversify their communication, I think it still shows what will be working on and what will be targeted while also not saying things from like a behavioral standpoint. I think that's really helpful. It gives a lot more context for a child. Mm -hmm. What about things like, because I know that other people on the team would be expecting you to address neurotypical social skills. So do you address things in your reports like eye contact at all? Or how are they addressed? Yeah. So when we're looking at something like the pragmatics profile on the self, it's a rating scale of like always, often, sometimes, never. And it divides it into like nonverbal communication and like social routines and behaviors in some of the subtests. And so I'll have teachers fill it out because I think it is helpful to understand what a kid is doing in the classroom because I'm not with them in the classroom all the time. So if I know that there are certain ways that they're engaging with others or not engaging with others in the classroom, then that's at least helpful information to have. So on the pragmatics profile specifically, it just gives you a scaled score. And so very often the scaled score on a kid who's neurodivergent is going to be like a one or a two. And it's considered quote unquote, significantly below average. And so what I'll do typically is I'll report the scale score and then I'll put two sections of like behaviors observed and not observed and just list them based on what the teacher reports. But then that's where I go into kind of my caveat section of these behaviors, quote unquote, these social behaviors that are not observed. These are neurotypical social skills and neurodivergent methods of communication may not use direct eye contact. They may not initiate communication and end conversations the way that peers, neurotypical peers do. And so I include it as information, but then in my recommendations, typically my recommendation will be to support engagement in a neurodiversity affirming lens. And then I put in parentheses, like, does not target, and then I put 
eye contact, whole body listening, expected and unexpected behaviors. Like I essentially make a list of all the things that we don't do and include that with my recommendations so that there isn't gray area for interpreting what I've said if this report then goes on to another professional. Your report is serving as education and information sharing in and of itself. That's really awesome. I think that actually this is a good segue for us to get into the IEP and our goal setting process. Do you have anything else that you want to cover though with the assessment process? I think the last piece in addition to direct assessment and observation would be getting teacher and parent input. In the schools, it's hard to get input from other professionals or from caregivers sometimes because we're not given time to work with them. We're not given time in our schedule to call parents or talk to parents or involve them in the process until we're at the meeting. And so I've also, in addition to some of my pre-written phrases that I use in evals, I also have pre-made like checklists. And I also use this in the IEP process. So it's it's something that I use for both evaluations and IEPs. And I use it in a case-by-case basis. I know that some teachers and caregivers are going to be the types that want like a free form answer. And I know that some are just going to want a checklist. And so I have both because I like to try to increase the odds of participation. And so getting parent information about okay, how does your child communicate to you that they want or don't want something? How do they engage with siblings or kids outside of school? Like, how do they play? What are their favorite ways to play? Getting all of that information can give a lot to use as a foundation, even though in the schools, we are targeting their ability to access their education. But that additional information about what they're doing or not doing at home gives us more information on the skills that we may or may not see when they're at school too. I also have heard too that along with it being difficult to involve parents at a certain level, I've heard a lot of SLPs kind of expressing dread around working with parents. Is that something that you've experienced where some of the school team might even be like avoidant with involving parents? Yeah, I think that part of it is that time piece that I mentioned, like for me also with my own executive functioning, scheduling a parent call is the hardest task. And there's not very many parents that I think I would need to schedule calls with necessarily during the year. But I and I also understand other professionals kind of hesitancy because a lot of us have gotten burned by parents. But I think that once you start to give those bids for connection with parents, they do start to trust you more and they start to help you by giving information about their child because they are the expert on their kids and involving them in that process. However we can, whether it's like a quick note home or a quick Just email saying, hey, your kid did this today and I'm really proud of them. Or, hey, thanks for doing this homework activity I sent home. Just finding something that's manageable for you in your schedule, your time, your best methods for communication. Trying to make those, and like I use 
the phrase bids for connection a lot with both working with kids and working with school teams and working with parents because that's, I think, a big relationship builder. That being said with the parents, the first step of the parent involvement is that ARD meeting. So what are your first thoughts with that process? So before the actual meeting, it's going to be that process of writing the IEP and getting the parent input. So I handle it a little bit differently when I'm a case manager and when I'm not. In Ohio, when a student is categorized as speech and language impairment, I run the whole show. Even like with evaluation and IEP, I'm like the school psych for the evaluation and do it all. And then with the IEP, have the intervention specialist case manager responsibilities. When I'm a related service and the intervention specialist is the case manager, I let them handle the parent contact for the most part. And for me, half of my caseload is speech and language impairment. And so it's a whole heck of a lot of paperwork and responsibility. And that's, I think, part of working with the younger grades too. This is not necessarily like just neurodiversity related, but like school related is the level of just what's on your plate as an early elementary SLP. I'll usually send a little email to the parent just being like, hey, like, what have you noticed over this last IEP period in terms of the student's growth or any areas that they're having difficulties with? Is there anything that's a priority to you to see over this next school year? That's not necessarily something that we have to do is involve the parents' priorities. But for a lot of our students that have higher support needs, we're going to be working on very similar skills in the school-based setting to help them access their education as to what parents are probably going to be seeing at home as well. And especially too, for students who use AAC, I also try to involve parents as much in the process to help with some of that carryover and parent counseling and education in terms of the kids' communication system. Getting teacher input, I do the same thing. With intervention specialists, we'll try to touch base with them on what they're seeing in the classroom, either in push-in or pull-out settings. And then with kids that I case manage, I have a Google form. Google Forms is my best friend. I will make Google Forms to give to parents. I'll make Google Forms to give to teachers. That is my personal favorite way of getting info. And so I have then a separate Google form that I have created to give to teachers to fill out to get information about the kids, like the things that we have to have in an IEP, and then the things that I want to know. How are they interacting with peers? Even kids who are like a speech-only Arctic kid, I'll ask that because I want to know how I can best support them holistically. And that's one of those areas where, for me, it doesn't really matter if I'm coming from a neurodiversity affirming perspective versus just affirming with a student. Asking those kind of holistic questions is one of those ways that I do that. And I always try to get the kids input too about like how they feel about themselves or how they feel about school or the things that they like and don't like. I think that including the kid's perspective in the IEP humanizes it more. Like it makes the student the center of what we're doing. And it's not just a paper that we have to go over every year and sign off on. It's not just 
numbers on a page. It's the actual child that we are there to support. Yeah, that's something that I also recently discussed on another episode. It's coming out after this one, but I imagine as the kids are younger, they may not have a whole lot of input necessarily, but I think that just having the kid's face there could be such a meaningful thing and a meaningful reminder, like you said, that this is really the person that we're talking about. Yes. And like you said, it's different. It's a lot different when kids are younger than when they're older. But I think trying to make as many modifications as we can to make it accessible for the kids to participate, it's important. And I do tell kids, hey, guess what? I get to talk to your parents next week. We're having your IEP meeting. And some kids will be like, IEP, what's that? So then of course we do the whole explanation of, oh, this is the plan. This is what we're going to be working on over this next year. And so trying to make it as child-friendly as possible early on, I think is important. Yeah, because it is. It's a human that is at the center of this document. It's not just checking the boxes. And I think that also leads really well into talking about goal writing. I know that for a kid who's like maybe just solely like working on the R sounds, the way that the goals are formulated is going to be different. But Mm -hmm. can you talk about your goal writing process? And if there's ever times that you have to get other people on board, even with the goals that you're writing, or I don't know if you just have total autonomy over that. But yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot of things that I do have autonomy with. And when I do, I run with it. But this, some of the things that I am held to are writing goals that then relate back to an identified need from the evaluation. That's the first part that my goals are held to. And then making sure that they are goals that are written with goal writing fidelity. So making sure that it's measurable and that it has all of the terms that it needs to have, like saying, by the end of the IEP period, child will blah, 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 with blah, 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 accuracy over three consecutive sessions. So making sure that it has that structure that IEP goals need to have. And I think that when you write a well-written goal from an objective perspective, people are less likely to question what you're working on and how. So it's almost like a cover your butt kind of a thing of, again, playing things to your advantage of showing I'm doing the things I need to do. I'm meeting the requirements, but I can do that and have a compassionate, empathetic, neurodiversity affirming goal based on what I have written. So part of my perspective with goals too is less is more. So if I have one goal, I'm not going to have more than three objectives on that goal. And I'm going to make sure that the skills that I'm targeting, like I said, are written in the ETR as identified needs. And then we, I've never been told that I have to do it this way, but I think that some other states it is required is relating it back to a state standard. So like for Ohio, we have the state standards for speaking and listening. 
And so usually I'll go through those and I have a few different ones that I've picked that I can use and say, hey, what I'm working on is working towards this skill. And honestly, I use one for most of my kids. And there's one that I use for Arctic where it's like kindergarten students will speak clearly and understandably with a variety of listeners or communication. I can't remember exactly how it's written off the top of my head. But honestly, I use that. I will put that in a lot of different goals because it's up to your interpretation of what skills do you need to be able to do that? Or what skills does that actually encompass to be able to speak clearly and understandably? So I do, again, that's another one of my points to make an IEP work in my advantage is like, hey, look, I wrote this really immaculately written goal and I connected this state standard. So I'm doing what you're telling me to, even if it's also doing what I want to do. Yeah, I think all of us who are affirming professionals in a world that is still not where it needs to be, according Mm -hmm. to us, we all have to hack the process a little bit. And I definitely find myself doing that as well. Do you ever get pushback from parents or other people on the team for not working on certain things or not putting certain things into goals? Yeah, so I, to this point, knock on wood, I haven't had parents push back. I think because working with younger kids, a lot of the kids haven't had very many years of therapy or speech services. Even like a kindergarten student, let's say like thinking of a kid who has been in quote unquote since birth. There's kids who have just had services their whole life. That's not that many years. And that's probably not that many professionals that have worked with a kid. So Parents don't necessarily ask for things by name. They don't specifically ask for like social thinking or specifically working on expected and unexpected behaviors. I don't get a lot of parent pushback or requests for that, but I do get that from other professionals, whether it is sometimes gen ed teachers have either described things or asked for things, mostly like people who know the quote unquote lingo, like other special services providers or special educators. There was one time where I was working with a student who was a second grader and the speech therapist that was at my school before me, it sounded like she ran a social thinking group as an intervention. So not provided on IEP services, but as a like response to intervention framework. And so someone told me, hey, this student was in a social detective group when he was in kindergarten. You should do that with him. And this student didn't have any diagnoses, but I was like, he's autistic and there's no way that I'm doing that with him. And so when someone told me that it made my stomach hurt first because I was like, I feel bad for this kid that this is what he did. This was in kindergarten that he was just starting out school and this is what people wanted him to do. And then having to respond to someone like, and this was the first time that I really had to assert myself in person to someone else about why I would not do something. It was really nerve wracking, but I told them I don't do that with kids. It's not neurodiversity affirming. I don't do social skills training. That was my explanation of like where I draw the line in 
how I work with kids in general and how I work with kids who are neurodivergent. And so that's the most that I've had to explain why I don't do things. My role has been a lot more in explaining what I do and why. And so, like I said, with kids who they don't have a lot of years of therapy services, that's where I feel the most power. And that is where I feel like we can really set up a kid for a neurodiversity affirming future and preventing them from having a trigger warning because a lot of this has to revolve around traumatizing kids and having traumatic experiences. But I feel like I have this responsibility to explain things and set things up in a way that I hope prevents them from having experiences that other neurodivergent people and autistic people have described having in their lifetime. That feels like my staunch responsibility to prevent. And I'm not going to be with these kids forever. And I'm having a really hard time right now specifically because this past year was my third year working at my school. My students are kindergarten through second grade. And so this is the first year that I've had kids all three years, and then they go to another building. And I have this deep-seated fear of, I don't know what's going to happen to them in the future. And I am like sad and afraid because like you said, the rest of the world isn't set up for them to support them. And so my hope is that if I am equipping these kids with some skills to advocate for themselves, and I'm equipping their parents with information, and I'm putting these words in their IEPs and their evaluations, these legal documents that have to be served and that will, there's a paper trail as they grow. I hope that I'm doing everything that I can to support them longer than just when I am on their team. I cannot tell you how much I resonate with that being in early intervention. I've had, unfortunately, some really just not great and troubling experiences with kids going into school services because it is so easy for parents to get steamrolled into just what the school team thinks should happen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm the same where I'm, I'm their first interaction with special education, trying to give them language and tools of advocacy and of neurodiversity. But sometimes I feel like, okay, maybe these parents will go into school and not even really notice that things are changing because they might think, oh, that's what they could do when they were a baby, but now they're in school. And so now they have to be held to these standards. And I'm not there to be like, no, these things can still be accommodated. We can still create an affirming environment for this child. But the relinquishing of that control is so challenging for me. Yeah, I feel. And like this, that's one of those things where for me, I also get over empathetic about things. And then my strong sense of justice kicks in. And I fear that I'm going to be bad at my job or people are going to perceive me as bad at my job because of all of those things that I know are like qualities about me that make me a better SLP. I also I cry at any large amount of emotion. And so especially these kids that I feel 
such a strong connection to and feel so passionately about their education and just overall life experience. Yeah, I'm very similar. But (laughs) that being said, I think that this is a good segue point for us because we've already been getting into working with the team. I think you've covered really well the parent side of it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about other people within the school system who may not quite be on board yet. How do you go about sharing this information? Because I think it's so important that we get everyone on the team with the affirming perspective. Yeah. So that's another area where it's essential to to work as a team and to communicate with team members. But again, is another thing that we're not given time for and we're not given like the supports for in the school system. But I think it's also a matter of reading people and figuring out what they're ready for because some school team members are going to be super open and communicative. And those are the people where you can go in deep. You can give them all the info. You can send them the links. You can explain why you're doing things and why you aren't. And so form those relationships, find those people. But then there's going to be people who are so apprehensive because the perspective I think that a lot of people have is how can we change this child to function in our environment, not how can we adapt to the environment to meet the child where they're at. And so those people are the hardest ones to get on board, but that you got to give them little by little and almost convince them to understand what you're doing. And so I think some of the school team members that are really important to form those relationships with would be your admins. Your admins are going to be the ones who have final say in a lot of things. Your intervention specialists that you work with are also going to be really important for me. I've previously had five intervention specialists that I work with at a time in this upcoming school year. It will be four, which I mean, it feels like a lot because that's a lot of difference in perspectives and experience and just general relationship vibes. And so making sure to form relationships with those people in whatever capacity is also important. Because for me too, I know there's a lot of discussion, I think, about like encroachment of other fields on speech pathology and what other people can target. I am a proponent for intervention specialists working on communication from the idea that kids communicate in their educational environment. Like communication and education, especially in these early years and even like middle school, high school intervention specialists, there's a lot that they can do to also support language and communication. But I will sometimes share goals with intervention specialists where it's one goal, but we both have minutes attached to it. And so like off the top of my head, one student right now that I have, an intervention specialist and I share a goal to increase the different functions of communication that the student uses. And so she's working on it from the sense of functional communication within peer interaction and in the classroom. And I'm working on it 
just in my sessions. And so some of those skills, if you're on the same page, you're going to get so much more bang for your buck. (laughs) Like your kid is going to be supported across more environments than just the 20, 30, 40 minutes a week that you get to be in contact with them. So forming those relationships with the intervention specialists and giving them that information to carry it over is key. And then it's really hard to work with gen ed teachers sometimes because from what I have gleaned, they had to take one special ed course in school and that's it. I think a lot of gen ed teachers don't feel equipped to work with kids in special education. They feel like they have a hands-off role because the kid has an intervention specialist. When in actuality, that gen ed teacher is a crucial part of the team in being able to support and include the student in the classroom and the culture of their classroom. So my school has, we have something called Choice PD. So it's like monthly professional development sessions where there might be three or four things that teachers can choose from. And our admins asked, hey, does anyone have anything that they specialize in? A teacher who took a bunch of math PD might share about that to the other teachers. So they asked for people to do some PD and I was like, hey, can I do one? And so I felt like that was a really efficient way to form relationships with Jenna teachers and also share information. So my first one was more so about... MTSS, like multi-tiered support interventions that classroom teachers can use to support speech and language as a whole. And then my, as I continued to do them, it also morphed into just general interventions and accommodations. And so I felt like being able to have a platform to directly like give information and talk to gen ed teachers It really helped my relationship with a lot of the teachers. I think that I shared things where they were like, oh, I didn't know that's actually what a speech therapist worked on. I think sharing that information with gen ed teachers really helped that relationship. So as far as, right, like relationships in the schools, we've got our admins, we've got our intervention specialists, our gen ed teachers, other related service providers. So physical therapists, occupational therapists is huge. I literally talk to her all the time about kids sensory needs and I co-treat with her which is like the best thing in the world and then paraprofessionals aides and attendants like they are with our kids all day they also we should be working with them and talking to them again school psychologists because they run the evals and do so much of the recommendation process for what should be in IEPs And then school counselors. A lot of times gen ed teachers refer to school counselors for social skills when in actuality they're just neurodivergent and are participating differently than their peers. So I also did a group with our school counselor at one point working on some problem solving and like interpreting social situations and self-advocacy. Like it was all kids who I picked up on as being neurodivergent, who teachers referred for social skills. So we got to do a little like intervention co-treat. So I try to pull in as many school providers as possible because that's what's going to get us the most support holistically for kids across environments. 
That is really cool. It sounds like you found a lot of creative ways to involve yourself in different areas of the school and collaborate. Is there any advice that you have about with gen ed teachers making sure that they're incorporating the accommodations that are listed on the IEP or the 504? Like what would be your hot tip for that? Because that's something that I hear is challenging. It is. And that's another area where it really depends on the teacher and their openness. I've heard teachers brag about like running a tight ship And it just sounds like an environment that is the antithesis of flexible and neurodiversity affirming when they're like, every kid is going to behave like this and perform like this. And we're going to get through this much material because everyone is just like working with their heads down. I find that those teachers are usually really good at teaching, but they're the hardest to get to carry over accommodations because It's not what they're used to doing, and it doesn't fit with their vision of how they do their job. And so a lot of times the kids who are neurodivergent and need accommodations, like they're seen as quote unquote bad kids. And so I, again, try to explain things in a way that fits their lens and tries to convince them that it's going to make their life easier. A lot of times I will make things for teachers. If it's a visual schedule or a visual support, or a lot of times I'll make like a little box for kids of like their visuals or of their safe items. If I make something like that and give it to the teacher, it's more likely to be carried over and used. I'll try to also explain more to teachers like hey, this is how this can work in your room. If I have said that a child needs autonomy in choosing how they listen best, I might say, hey, here's some examples of flexible seating. Here are some ideas for times in the day when the kid might need to get up and move around. Or if there's a sensory diet that the OT has recommended, here's a visual for... The kid, I have a lot of kids who really benefit from some of that proprioceptive input or deep pressure. Like I'll teach kids how to do chair push-ups. So I might have a little visual for chair push-ups or for deep breathing. A lot of it is like I have to make things, which again sucks because time is short in terms of what I have in my day. But again, like once I start making things and have more of it in my like resource library, it gets easier. And once you have that relationship with that teacher, the next year, if you have a student in their class, then they're going to be more likely to already know what to do. So taking the lead to a certain extent on making sure that those things happen. Yeah, that's good. Like again, hard, don't have time for it. But I feel better. I can sleep at night knowing (laughs) that I've at least done something to go in the positive direction. And I can even, if I'm transitioning a kid back into class after a session and we touch base with the teacher together to say, hey, this is what we worked on today. That I think counts in their minutes. Like we're actively working towards their goals. By all working together, collaborating, involving the kid and talking about what they're working on, that's another kind of like way to 
get around things like that is specially designed instruction. It's like killing two birds with one stone and making efficient and effective use of our time. I love that. That's really great advice. So do you think we're ready to segue now into the actual therapy portion? Yeah, we are. (laughs) Okay. So again, I just want you to tell us all about how do we make neurodiversity affirming therapy work in the school setting? And I want to make sure that we also, because you did say you have a self-contained class on your campus, I want to make sure that we talk about that as well. But let's start with what you do, like either one-on-one or in groups in your office. Yeah. So for my kids who are in like gen ed and cross-categorical rooms, there's a variety of service delivery models. At first, I was really afraid of pushing in because I didn't know the teachers. I didn't know the intervention specialists. I didn't know what, again, their openness would be to collaborating and working together. And so I know that there's a lot of other SLPs who do change schools more frequently or who are not in schools for an extended amount of time. So I do feel like my perspective and my advice, I just want to recognize that would be really hard to apply when you're not in a school for more than one year. So big mad props to all you SLPs who have that much change in your placements. Since this is going to be my fourth, going into my fourth year at the same school full time, that has really helped me put my roots in and learn the people to work with the most. So it's minutes wise, formulating your schedule, figuring it out, scheduling kids in a way that works best for them it's hard. It's like a big feat. Try it out. That's my advice to people too, is try it out small. Pick one group that you could do or one time of the day that you could push in. I have my people in special ed who I've picked them as my power people. And so there's the intervention specialist who we have a couple of students actually that we kind of tag team goals on. She has a group that she was doing every day for half an hour that was focused on engagement and like communication in an educational academic sense. That first off in and of itself, the fact that she was doing that, I was absolutely pumped because it was exactly what the kids needed. And I feel like a lot of times when kids go from preschool to school age, people think that you don't need to do things that are fun anymore, which I don't understand. Like I use so many songs and games and toys and like kids need that. Kids need to play. Kids need to be kids. And if therapy is not fun and is like torture and aversive, that's not going to help. So this intervention specialist was doing like songs and nursery rhymes and crafts and then would have play at the end like it was set up so beautifully to support and engage these kids so that was the time that I pushed in because it targeted everything that it needed to and it gave us a chance to bounce off of each other and a lot of times too the kids who are more difficult to put into groups It's because they just have a little bit more support that they need. 
And so having more than one adult at a time, like it capitalizes on your time. So that went off swimmingly this past year and we're going to continue to do it next year and have just even bigger and better plans. Highly recommend trying out that push in model with an intervention specialist. So as far as like in my schedule, I had that once a week. I had another student who had lower support needs and was working on self-advocacy. I pushed into her class for 15 minutes a week. That's very low minutes. And I think a lot of people would think that doesn't do a whole lot, but it allowed me to help support her in advocating for herself in the environment that she needs to advocate for herself in. And it helps model for the gen ed teacher too, how to support her to do that. So those are my like, quote unquote, atypical service delivery models or like non-traditional maybe. And then I have just your traditional pull-out therapy setting. My room is tiny and won't fit more than three students. So that's my cap for group sizes. But I try to intentionally pair kids with peers that they mesh well with and that they're going to enjoy, hopefully, coming to therapy sessions with. I try to balance structure and flexibility. And so I don't want kids to not know what to expect when they come to me, not in the sense of quote unquote behaviorally, but just knowing that I am consistent and a constant for them, that I will always show up and be there to support them that my room is a safe place to try and make mistakes and be supported. And so that's the foundation of my like pull out groups and sessions. I tried this year to see kids individually as much as possible when especially my neurodivergent kids and my kids who are gestalt language processors, which is a whole another aspect that intersects with neurodiversity. But especially in the schools, it is so hard to schedule that one-on-one time. For kids who I picked as kids that I really wanted to try to prioritize seeing them one-on-one, I would usually schedule them twice a week, once in a small group, and then once one-on-one. And I felt like that went really well. I had kids that I paired because they were working on similar things. But then once I started working with them, I realized that they had conflicting sensory profiles. And that's, I think, an example too of trying something, seeing how it goes, and not feeling bad if it like doesn't go well. In theory, it would have been great. But then it helped me learn more about the kids too. It helped me learn more about what sets them up for success the best and maybe what to avoid. So a big thing in the neurodiversity affirming therapy world is using play-based therapy, child-led therapy. And I know for me, that can be really easy because I'm going to their house and we have all their toys and we don't have a class to go to. We're not meeting those educational needs. So In some settings, it might be easier than others. Is that something that you incorporate into your sessions as well? And can you tell us how you make it work for school? Yeah, for sure. So in early elementary school, there is, like I said, that push to be all 
hands-on academic focus, what is going to help them do better on state testing, and what is going to help them answer questions in after reading. There's a big focus on that when in actuality what kids are learning from is what they're going to be engaged in and what they're going to be engaged in is going to be play and playing the way that they naturally are going to play. So I'm going to be honest, I have had to spend a lot of my own money on things, but it makes my life easier and it benefits my kids. I try to save money where I can, but a lot of times, especially with kids this young, I need toys. I need hands-on manipulatives and objects. A lot of times our kids, they'll want things that we see as random objects and not that fun, but it's things that they are engaged in. I am in a buy nothing Facebook group. And so I stock that thing for if it's I don't know, bottle caps, or one of my kids really liked anything yellow. So if it's yellow markers, yellow dice, yellow anything, just finding random things that our kids like and getting them for free on a Facebook group is great. There are also like Once Upon a Child and thrift stores have a lot of toys and books and random household objects. If you're trying to be a thrifty SLP that also is getting things that your kids are going to be engaged in, those are some of the ways that I try to do it. I also incorporate kids' special interests as like a foundation for connecting with them and making them feel seen and valued and understood. And so using those things that are important and close to them in our sessions as a foundation for the session, not as a mechanism for compliance. Because I see a lot of people being like, using their little first then chart of okay, first work, which whole other thing when people call speech therapy work that like absolutely grinds my gears, we shouldn't be making a six year old work. But being like first work, then Sesame Street or first work, then whatever the kids special interest is that feels like a power move. Like you have this power over this kid that you're using something that's so deeply important to them to manipulate them into doing what you want. Don't like that at all. And so if they have things that are their special interests, like this year, some of my kids was super into Winnie the Pooh and SpongeBob. And he was also a Gestalt language processor. And those are the things that his scripts were from too. So like, acting out scenes in the shows with little characters and drawing on whiteboards and even using other just like inanimate objects to act things out or talk about them. That was so like the first time that he was scripting from Spongebob and I started scripting it back to him. He looked at me and the look on his face was like, you understand you get me he was mind blown so moments like that where you can connect with kids and just really see them like your therapy materials and your therapy sessions like that's what we're aiming for I feel like there's this big trend for themed therapy I was literally about to bring that up and ask you because I feel like every time a new holiday comes around, it's like, here's our Valentine's theme. Here's our St. Patrick's theme. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I want to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. So for some kids, it's great. Like for your analytic language processors that are working on 
present progressive verbs or what have you, I think it can be great. I think a lot of the themed therapy materials have their place, like for engagement and things that kids are familiar with and enjoy. Who doesn't love trick-or-treating? Like, I love it. So I'm also going to be more motivated to have fun in a therapy session with a kid to talk about trick-or-treating. And sometimes our kids too, who are neurodivergent or are just adult language processors, those are things that they're gravitated towards too. Sometimes like one of my kids really liked Thanksgiving and we talked about Thanksgiving all year long. So you bet I brought out my Thanksgiving materials in March, but it's not going to be great for every kid, especially if your kid has it has no interest in it whatsoever. That's not going to be an engaging therapy session. That's like a very child-led process of figuring out, are we going to use something that's themed or are we just going to use materials that are purposeful and meaningful for them? Another way that I like to bridge those is with sensory bins. I have a lot of kids who really like just that hands-on process. They like those activities and materials that they can get their hands in and that they can go through their scripts with a bunch of different kinds of activities and materials. And so sensory bins are like, it's really easy to swap things out using different like materials that I get from Dollar Tree. Like if it's Easter grass or the little... I don't know, there's like the soft Easter grass, then there's the paper that kind of goes in presents. I'll get stuff like this, different colors. I'll get beads. I'll get beans. I'll just get little different little items and objects as fillers. And you can easily just throw in little laminated vocab picture cards, or you can take them out. Or you can put in mini erasers of a kid's favorite thing, or you can take them out. As far as like the actual therapy materials, multi-purpose is going to be best because like in most people's caseloads, they're not all neurotypical and they're not all neurodivergent. Like you have to work to a neurodiverse like therapy caseload. And so having that mix of themed activities and just random toys and games and fun things is key. I think the other thing as far as what you're working on, it's another thing that is going to take a lot of time, but like making materials specifically for kids, whether it's like using special interests, like one of the kids on my caseload, this is something that his intervention specialist did with him actually, is they wrote a book about his special interests and doing things like that where you're targeting goals, you're targeting skills, like you're not just messing around. Like I think a lot of people might see things that are child-led as not actually working on skills when in actuality, there's so many things that you can target in a fun and affirming and child-led way. And so if it's making something with the kid, like if you're making a video about something they're passionate about, or you're making a slideshow or a book about their favorite things for them, and then using that in your therapy sessions. And one of the other interventions I think that a lot of people have used in the past and that can be used in a neurodiversity affirming way is using social stories. And it's one of my, honestly, one of my favorite ways to help support kids is making these like personal social stories because you can write social stories in a way that shames them into behaving in the way that you want them to, or you can use a social story to help 
explain to a kid why things happen, or you can use it to help prepare them for something that will happen and front load them and reduce that anxiety of the unknown. Yeah. And my understanding when people are talking about social stories, like what I'll see a lot is do not use a social story unless you are using one that is like from the actual original research-based way of using it. Because the way that people use social stories now is, yeah, like you said, can be a very shameful thing. Mm -hmm. I think in my experience, I've seen social stories used as a mechanism for compliance. Just again, like another like this is what you will do because it's what we want you to do. Um, And that's why I think like framing being neurodiversity affirming as not like things to do and things not to do, but a mindset and clinical decision-making is so important because there is no singular tool that is always going to be affirming or always going to be not affirming. Mm -hmm. It's how you use it and your intention behind it. So it's so important. And it is. And that's part of what makes it so hard is you can't say, here's a curriculum. Here is a pre-made box that I will give you of tools to use with all of your neurodivergent students. That's part of what I think makes people afraid. And, oh, I can't handle starting this because there isn't a clear-cut answer. But like you said, it's a mindset shift and I think one of the questions that helps me determine or like kind of two questions that kind of help me determine if something is neurodiversity affirming or not is who is it for? If we're doing this, who is it benefiting? And based on what expectations, is it a societally driven expectation of just what people do and what is valuable and quote unquote normal. And if one of those answers is anything other than like, it's for the person, it's what the person wants to do, and it helps the person be their most authentic self, then the answer is probably that it's not going to be neurodiversity affirming. That is a really nice lead into one of the last questions that I wanted to ask you about. Do you have any advice for anyone who might be listening who is a school not just SLP, but school therapist or teacher who y'all have so much on your plate. You have all your paperwork. That's like the big thing I hear from schools is all the paperwork. Do you have any tips for learning more and incorporating more of these strategies when you have so many other things on your plate? Yeah. So I think some of the best ways to learn more is to do it in little chunks. So even if it's something as simple as listening to a podcast on your commute or following an account on Instagram, like I think that people might discredit social media because people are like, oh, evidence-based practice, you must be learning things that were then researched in the best, most strongest research methods when that is gatekeeping. I'm sorry, that is not accessible and that's not how you share information with the masses. So you can join a Facebook group like there's neurodiversity nurturing SLPs is a really good one that's smaller. There's also a group for SLPs with ADHD. Shout out if anyone else is an SLP with ADHD. So like Facebook groups, but you also have to be cautious because there are some Facebook groups out there that are not bias free. So following people, making sure that you're 
listening to autistic voices, making sure that you're following like queer autistic people and BIPOC autistic people, like diversifying the information that you're consuming and doing it in a way that's accessible. So if it's okay, I'm going to hop on Instagram for five minutes and my intention is that I'm going to read three posts about neurodiversity. Like that is way more approachable than like doing a three-day seminar or paying $500 for a course. That is really good, approachable advice. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, we do have to start wrapping up. Can you give us like your final thoughts, final tips for people who are trying to be affirming in the schools before we have to come to a close? My overall advice, it's more simple than it feels. But I think just being committed to learning and growing, not being stuck in your ways and feeling committed to the way that you've always done things or the way that things have always been done, trying to do things in a way that works for you and your caseload and your schedule. Like we are all burnt out. We are all overworked. We are all exhausted. But if listening to an audiobook or a podcast on your commute feels accessible, do that. If making one visual or material a day or a week feels accessible, do that. And talk to other people. Get other people's input and share information with other people. Make things easier on yourself by finding systems that work, like making a bank for statements and goals and making checklists that you can reuse. Make it easier on yourself. And that's going to be more sustainable for you in your career because it's hard. It's really hard. So I give people a lot of credit for kind of hopping on the neurodiversity affirming train. And it makes me happy that there's people that care about this so much that this is like a growing movement not just neurodiversity the neurodiversity affirming movement in itself but specifically SLPs specifically in our field and especially marginalized SLPs being a big force I think in this we covered so much information today I am so appreciative thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me and just sharing where can the listeners find you online? Yeah, so I am newly on professional, quote unquote, Instagram, but my Instagram account is SBP, the SLP. My initials are SBP, and so that just kind of works with the SLP, but follow me on there. I don't have a whole ton posted, but I have some exciting stuff planned. And then if you are an Ohio speech therapist, I will be presenting at OSpeak in the fall. It's our organization that's specifically for school-based speech therapists, and I will be presenting about neurodiversity-affirming ETRs and IEPs. I am so excited for you. I can't wait to hear more about that. So please tell me how it goes. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you so much again for joining us on another episode of NeuroTwist for our Prep for and Affirming School Year series. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying this series so far, please share it with your fellow school-based professionals or anyone else who you think would find this information valuable. And also please rate this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. And I will catch y'all in the next episode. Bye.